Welcome to, in my opinion, the most mysterious person of the Godhead. And I thought the Trinity was hard. This is Warrior Podcast, changing the world by introducing warriors to the warrior God. I'm your host, Elizabeth Andrade, here with Connor Shanahan. And today we're talking about who is the Son of God. Elizabeth, I love when you ask questions that are already answered by somebody smarter than me. And in this case, who is the Son of God has already been addressed by a relatively intelligent fellow by the name of the Apostle Paul. And the answer comes from Colossians 1, 13 through 20. For he has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the Son he loves, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For him, all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things were created by him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything he might have the supremacy. For God was pleased to have all his fullness and dwell in him, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. Amen. What a beautiful passage of scripture. It's so significant for us to to start here, um, to start with these truths about the Son of God. So we see here in Colossians chapter 1, as we, as we attempt to walk through this difficult question of who is the Son, and we'll get into some of the difficulties therein of why this question is so complicated, but let's start at just some exciting truths about who the Son is. The Son has provided redemption for our sins. Verse 14, we have redemption through the Son. We have forgiveness of sins through the Son. Consider the beautiful, magnificent truths of the Son of God revealed in verses 15 through 20, that the Son of God is the image of God. He is the firstborn over all creation. Everything was created by Him. Everything was created through Him and for Him. He's before all things. He's the head of us, the head of the church, our ruler, our king. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that he has first place. He's preeminent in everything. The Father was pleased to have the fullness of God, the fullness of the divine in the Son of God, and through the Son to reconcile all things to the Father. These are some beautiful, weighty, significant truths of the Son. And uh, this passage, the reason why we open with this, was to simply frame our proper understanding of who the Son is. Because if we're honest, it's, it's the second person of the Trinity, the Son of God, might just be the most confusing. And why would that be? Yeah, although many of us might say it's the Holy Spirit, because mm-hmm. uh, what on earth does the Holy Spirit do? The Holy Ghost. <laughs> the Holy Ghost, yeah, exactly. Exactly. It's Father, Son, and uh, who, again? What are we talking about? Well, yeah, because you can relate to the Father, you can relate to a Father figure, and you can relate to a Son, but the Spirit is something we don't quite understand. Yeah, the but... Spirit invokes, you know, al- although our God is one God, eternally existing in three distinct persons. The spirit certainly in our minds invokes a bit more of the supernatural that might make us a bit more uncomfortable. But uh, I think really the mystery lies in the son. I mean, how are we to understand the son of God becoming flesh in Jesus Christ? This is a big one. Um, So Colossians 1, the reason why we start here, because this lays, this kind of provides a helpful outline. May I use a big word in orthodox we were going to have to define that one. Yeah, definitely going to. Thank you for not letting me get away with that. Orthodox simply means uh, generally accepted among church history. So like kind of traditional Christianity accepted throughout church history as correct doctrine, correct teaching. 
So if we want to understand who the Son of God is, Colossians 1 is a wonderful place to start. And the reason why setting a firm foundation for who the Son is, right from the beginning, outlined clearly in Colossians chapter 1, is because, unfortunately, the role and person and being of the Son of God has been one that has been misunderstood and dare I say, dangerously so, dangerously misunderstood at at certain points throughout history. Would the word be heresy? The word would indeed be heresy. So from the very beginning, after the Son of God took on flesh as Jesus Christ, lived a perfect life on earth, died on the cross to take the judgment that we deserve for our sin onto himself, to atone for our sin, to make a clear pathway for us to be redeemed and reconciled to the Father, applied to us by the power of the Holy Spirit, hashtag triune God, hashtag warrior podcast. After that, after Jesus was ascended then, uh, the church began. The church began and, and groups of people began to gather together, follow Jesus, proclaim the word that he had given us and uh, to make disciples in his name, to baptize people into the triune fellowship of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. It did not take long, Elizabeth, for the early church members for some people within the early church, several years, uh, maybe even a hundred years or so, a little bit more longer than that after Jesus ascended to begin to ask some dangerous questions about the nature of the son. Such as? Such as, in what sense is Jesus God's son? That sounds like a heavy question Mm -hmm. because it is a heavy question. So in the early church, one of one of the biggest first heresies or false teachings and about God. what is God, a heresy again? Exactly. Heresy is a false teaching about God, a, a, probably a dangerously false teaching about God. And so one of the biggest heresies, one of the biggest false teachings about God came from this question, in what sense is Jesus God's son? How does that relationship work? This actually began from a pastor named Arius, perhaps a well-intending fellow, perhaps, Uh, That might be a bit charitable, but he was looking at passages like that in which we read in um, Colossians. He would look at the language that we see in uh, Colossians 1.15 saying that, speaking of of the Son, he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. And he would misconstrue that verse and say that Jesus was then born, or the Son of God was then born. The Son of God was then created. He was a created being, just like the angels. This heresy probably came from Arius' desire to honor the father as strange as that sounds he wanted to honor the father and say no one is god except for the father alone therefore the son of god or therefore jesus christ must be a created being he must be less than the father he must not be divine he must not have eternally existed with the father but if he didn't eternally exist as we discussed then god's identity could not be love yeah that is facts and also we're gonna have to redo some podcasts (laughs) Because we've been saying that our God is one God who has eternally existed in three distinct persons. But you're absolutely right that one of the most significant implications of our God being triune is that makes him uniquely loving. That the Father has always loved the Son and always loved the Spirit and out of that abundance of love, out of that perfect eternal love, created us. That is wildly significant. And no monotheistic religion can claim that love because one God and one divine person cannot love anything. He wasn't eternally existing in a fellowship of love. Right. Well, he would need something in order to exercise love if somehow he were to contain that nature and characteristic of love. But our God has always loved. He has always been love. He always will be love. And that is that is our driving home point 
of the Trinity, of why the Trinity is practically important for us is because it influences your identity. It shapes your identity. It should ground your identity as one who is loved by the triune God who has eternally loved, who has eternally shared love and fellowship within himself, within the Father and Son and Spirit, and out of that abundant love created us. How was Arius's thoughts taken by the rest of the church? Unfortunately, a lot of the, the lay people of the church, a lot of the people that were simply attenders of the church bought into this and they believed it. And that's why um, these lies are so dangerous. And that's why heresy, it, we're trying to bring it up and talk about it because it seems throughout church history, heresies are always birthed in the church and always have a biblical text behind them. So we want to be good students of scripture though, and understand scripture in light of its entire context. On the, on the positive side, out of this heresy came one of the most beautiful professions of faith that we have. And, uh, and that simple profession of faith is, is the Nicene Creed. So a council of smart dudes, uh, pastors and scholars got together to form essentially a response to Arius and a response to this claim that um, the Son of God was a created being. Let me just read perhaps, if you don't mind, the Nicene Creed. Yes, go ahead. We'll just do the whole thing. This is the Nicene Creed. We believe in one God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, of all things visible and invisible, and in one Lord, Jesus Christ, the only Son of God, begotten from the Father before all ages, God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made, of the same essence as the Father. Through him, all things were made. For us and for our salvation, he came down from heaven. He became incarnate by the Holy Spirit and the Virgin Mary and was made human. He was crucified for us under Pontius Pilate. He suffered and was buried. The third day he rose again, according to the scriptures. He ascended to heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. He will come again with glory to judge the living and the dead. His kingdom will never end. And we believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord, the giver of life. He proceeds from the Father and the Son, and with the Father and the Son is worshiped and glorified. He spoke through the prophets. We believe in one holy Catholic and apostolic church. We affirm one baptism for the forgiveness of sins. We look forward to the resurrection of the dead and to life in the world to come. Amen. Some pretty big words there. Very big words. And uh, hopefully what you saw was some similar language that we see to Colossians. So if I think we interpret Colossians 1 in light of the entirety of scripture, right? From Genesis 1 to Revelation, where we see this one story playing out, where we see the triune God redeeming and restoring all things then you would come to know, based off of a proper reading of Colossians 1, uh, what is clearly stated here in the Creed. And so let me just read again some of this key language used in the Creed to discuss the nature of the Son of God. As we seek in this episode to, to simply answer the apparently complicated question, who is the Son? So some of the, the, the important language that we see here in the Nicene Creed, we believe in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only Son of God, begotten from the Father before all ages. God from God, light from light, True God from true God, begotten, not made, of the same essence as the Father. So it might, it might seem trivial to bring that up, but that's a significant moment in church history. And uh, this heresy of the Son of God being a created being is, uh, is one that, one, wreaked havoc on the early church, and unfortunately a lot of people bought into this lie. However, it also led way to, or gave birth to, one of the most beautiful creeds that we have in our faith, the Nicene Creed, to say that the Son of God is God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made. What is begotten? 
Yes. So that's a very important clarification question. As we talk about the Son of God being begotten from the Father, what the word beget or begotten most simply means is to bring forth. And so we want to be honest, like most of the time, this word, as we would use it, does mean to like give birth, to bring into being. What's important to note, though, is that you can only bring into being that which shares in your nature, if that makes sense. And let me explain that. So a giraffe begets a giraffe. When a giraffe brings forth another giraffe into being, even through procreation, it's it's the same nature, right? A giraffe gives birth to a giraffe, right. begets a giraffe. A lion begets a lion, a human begets a human. When this language is used of God of the Son, the point being made is that the Son of God shares in the same divine nature and essence of the Father. The Son is not created from the Father. The Son shares in the eternal divine nature and essence and being of God and also with the Holy Spirit. So it's not to say, as, uh, as scripture, as the Nicene Creed would say, that the Son of God is begotten from the Father. The point there that we see from the entirety of scripture, that we see from the beautiful creeds that we have in the Apostles' Creed and the Nicene Creed, is to say that the Son of God shares in the same divine nature as the Father. So the Son of God is God. Yes. So what about, what are we to think of Jesus? Welcome to, in my opinion, the most mysterious person of the Godhead. So now you have a triune God who is one divine essence Come on. and three distinct persons. Yes. And the son of God, who is God, fully God, but fully human. Yes. The so plot thickens. The plot thickens, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome to Mysterious Theology. That's a new name of our podcast, Mysterious Theology. That'd be kind of a rough name. Warrior Podcast is so much cooler. Uh, so the Son of God is... God. God, <laughs> yes. And listen, at this point, let us just encourage our audience. These are difficult things to talk about. These are difficult things to fully wrap our head around. We could spend hours talking about it and never understand fully. Correct. There is some mystery here. We don't want to act at all like this is simple. And we do want to encourage you, though, that God does invite us to know him. God does want to reveal himself. So let's stumble through it together. Here we go. The Son of God, who is God, shares in the same divine essence and nature as the Father and the Holy Spirit, became incarnate, took on flesh. What is incarnate? Took on flesh. Okay. Yeah, that's kind of a, that's kind of a big word as well. Uh, there's so many big words in our faith that we just think are common knowledge. And we use them daily. Yeah, we really got to work on that. So, so the Son of God took on flesh as Jesus Christ. Now, this is obviously a significant moment in redemptive history, and we'll talk so much more moving forward about how significant this was, about the plot of where this happens in the plot of Scripture, where this happens in the story of the Bible, and why it's so significant for a Messiah to come on our behalf. For our purposes today, in order to keep this under 12 hours, this <laughs> podcast episode, uh, let's just say, let's focus in on the nature of, of who God is and the nature of the Son of God. So the Son of God takes on flesh as Jesus Christ and is given the name in the incarnation, the Lord Jesus Christ. So let me say a controversial statement. Jesus has not eternally existed. The but Son of the God son has. Has, eternally, has eternally existed. The Son of God is God. When the Son of God took on flesh, he was given the name that is above all names. Can I get a hallelujah? Jesus hallelujah. Christ. Come on, somebody. Uh, Jesus Christ. Okay. The person is the Son of God. Son of God, the Son of God is God <laughs> who has eternally existed, who has eternally existed. And the person that we're talking about is the son of God. That person, the son of God has two natures, which is confusing. 
there's like so many things going on here. There's so much going on. The Trinity is so beautiful and mysterious and complex. So let me try to stumble through this and then hopefully we'll break it down in a way that's comprehensible. The person that we're talking about, the son of God, the son of God has two natures, divine and human. The son of God has has eternally existed in his divine nature. And when he, in the incarnation, when the son of God took on flesh and was given the name Jesus Christ, he took on this human nature. The son of God as a person is perfect in his divine nature and also is perfect in his human nature. It is a mysterious unity, but it is unity nonetheless. So both of these natures, as confusing as this is, hang with me, warrior. You got through basic training. You got through your first day on the streets as a police officer. You can get through some talk on the Trinity. I believe in you. Both natures concur together in one person while both being conserved in existence. So the son has a divine nature and a human nature that are unified in his person as the son of God and yet are distinct natures coexisting within one person. So it's kind of like how the Trinity is three in one. God, the son is two in one. Yeah, that works. I like that. If that is heresy, then please let us know and we will retract that. But as of right now, I like that. I don't know. I'm just thinking, what's, how, can this, how can I process this in my mind? Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. And I think, I think the point here is, is what we want you to know is that so often we think about Jesus, right? And rightfully so. Jesus is, uh, he is the son of God. And that is the name given to the son of God in the incarnation in the most significant act in redemptive history. And so we want to give all honor and glory and praise to Jesus Christ. We also want to properly understand, though, that the deity of Christ is wildly significant. The deity of Christ, the fact that Jesus Christ, while he was on earth, is he was and is and always will be God himself in the person of the Son of God. And I thought the Trinity was hard. Mm. So we have the Son of God who became incarnate in Jesus Christ when he took on a human nature and then he died on the cross. What happened after that? Phenomenal question. In what sense did Jesus die? Can God die? No. So yeah, how do we process this? This is this is part of why we said at the beginning that understanding the Son, and we would call this, let me give you another $5 word out there, Christology. Yes, please define that, Connor. <laughs> <laughs> the study of Christ, understanding Christ, understanding the Son of God. We just want to provide an abundance of encouragement, understanding that this is complex. It's fun to talk about, and I think it's important to try to understand God as best we can. So that's our purpose here. But also, show yourself some grace. God shows you grace in trying to understand these complex things. So in what sense did Jesus die? Jesus died, clearly, clearly stated in the scriptures. What though does it mean to die? What does it mean to die? It does not mean to cease to exist, right? Right. At least from our Christian worldview, right. from our Christian mm-hmm. perspective, to die does not mean cease to exist. The spiritual aspect of who we are, might we say our souls, become separated from the material aspect of who we are, might we say our body, in death. That makes sense. That makes sense. So our souls and our bodies separate from each other in death. The human soul becomes separated from the physical body and our body goes into the grave or our body is cremated. The immaterial part of who we are, our soul, goes into some immaterial state of existence. We would call this paradise or Hades. We would call this heaven or hell. Jesus had a human soul and a divine nature, both of which are completely immaterial. So while uh, Jesus Christ crucified on the cross dies and is put into the grave, his human body goes into the grave. 
but the two immaterial components, his human soul and the divine nature that he has shared for eternity are separated from that body. So we can affirm, of course, Jesus Christ died on the cross. And he, you know, pastorally, I would be able to look at somebody who had just lost a loved one or who is suffering through a difficult time or facing a terminal prognosis and be able to look them in the eye and say, Jesus Christ, the Son of God, knows what you are going through. He knows what you are about to face. He has been there and he's willing to walk with you step by step. He's willing to comfort you and strengthen you and reveal himself to you. Our God is a, the writer of Hebrews says, a, a sympathetic high priest, an empathetic high priest who knows the suffering of what it means to be human. The Son of God tasted the fullness of a human death on the cross, and yet his divine nature was never killed. His divine nature never ceased to exist, nor did his human soul. The, so the Son of God has eternally existed in the divine nature, takes on flesh as Jesus Christ, in the incarnation. And since that moment, since the incarnation, the Son of God has existed in both divine and human nature and will exist this way forevermore. So if I understand correctly, God the Son has always existed as part of the Godhead, yes. three in one. And the Son, um, as in the human nature, Jesus Christ is also unified with God the Son, right? Yeah. So there are some difficult texts i think that's hard for me to understand which is when jesus christ was dying on the cross his last words were my god my god why have you forsaken me mm. how is that text possible there's a few so yeah let's get into some scripture now enough of us enough of us just asserting some of these truths let's dive into some of the scriptures here so there are a few difficult texts that come to mind when we start talking about okay if the son has been if the son of god is god has shared in that eternal divinity that eternal fellowship forever with the father and the spirit it seems as though there might be some difficult scriptures, some difficult texts, difficult passages in scripture um, that might, at first glance, challenge that knowledge. Not the least of which is Jesus on the cross crying out, my God, my God, how have you forsaken me? And where we go here with is, is the significance of what was happening on the cross. The Son of God, in the person of Jesus Christ, was being crucified on the cross he was enduring the wrath of the Father for the judgment and punishment of our sin, right? So we believe that God created a wonderful world for human beings to flourish and enjoy in his presence. Mankind disobeyed, messed it up, messed everything up, and then uh, sin comes into the world, sin enters the cosmos and fractures everything. The way for us to be redeemed to the Father, reconciled to the Father, is through the cross of Jesus Christ because he takes the punishment that we deserve for our sin. So in that weighty, significant moment in redemptive history where the Son of God in the person of Jesus Christ on the cross enduring the wrath of the Father, the Son of God as Jesus truly endured the wrath of the Father and to him in that moment, it felt like he was being forsaken. It felt like he was being torn from the unity and the fellowship that he had for all of time. That eternal fellowship, that eternal nature that he shared with the Father as we just brought up the verse in, in Hebrews where Jesus is a sympathetic high priest, where he's able to understand what we're going through. He has seen the depths uh, and the pain of human nature on the cross. He truly experienced that. He truly experienced the judgment and the punishment that we deserve. And, and that's one of the reasons why we can, no matter what we're going through in life, no matter what this year 2020 looks like, we can say God is good because of the cross, because he himself, God himself as the son of God, took the punishment and judgment that we rightfully deserve so that we can be reconciled to him. So this 
terrible, horrible day in redemptive history of the Son of God as Jesus Christ being crucified on our behalf, truly enduring the wrath of God, actually becomes the proof by which we can declare that God is good no matter what we're going through, no matter the circumstance, because he has provided, even through sacrificing himself, provided a way for us to be redeemed and reconciled and rescued from the broken, from the kingdom of darkness that we read in Colossians 1, the broken world that we live in and live in the kingdom of the Son forever and evermore. Even though the only thing we deserve is the wrath of God. He felt the pain that we should be feeling. He took on the judgment that we should face. He took the punishment that we rightfully deserve in our place. That is just another example of how God is love. Yeah, we keep coming back to it in our conversation here on the Trinity, but that is one of the most significant implications of our God being triune, that he is love. He has always loved. He is love, period. And the cross providing a means for us to be reconciled to him for eternity is the greatest public declaration of that love. Okay, that's really helpful. But Connor, I have another problem text for you. And that is- Philippians 2. We always got problems. We always got problems. 5 through 11. Your attitude should be the same as that of Christ, who, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as man. He humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. Wow. First and foremost, what a beautiful text. Very beautiful. What a beautiful passage declaring the glory and beauty of the Son. Secondly, I'm going to put you on the spot, Elizabeth. Oh, no. A while back, we were talking about how to read the Bible. Yes. And I said that there were two simple rules for how to best read the Bible. Do you remember the first one? It started with a C. Context. Oh, come on, somebody. (laughs) Context, context, context. All right, you need to remember that. You, warrior listening, the number one rule for interpreting the Bible, what will save you from all kinds of heresy, all kinds of trouble, and all kinds of confusion is context, context, context. So if you would humor me, would you read verse five again, please? The very first verse from this passage? Yes. Your attitude should be the same as that of Jesus Christ. The attitude of Jesus Christ. So what we see here is verse 5 introducing verses 6 through 11. Does that make sense? Yes. So we see verse 5 talks about an attitude. It's teaching an attitude. The point of this, though Paul rants about the glory and beauty of the Son, the point here is to say, have this attitude that Christ Jesus had. The attitude of not looking upon your own personal interests. The attitude of Jesus is one that wasn't grasping on the things that were rightfully his, but he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant in the likeness of humanity. Even though he was still God. Yes, even though he was still God. And and it says that, who existing in the nature of God, the form of God. So what we see in this passage is not, you know, the reason we bring this up, and it is a problem text, because some people would see those words, emptied himself, and would say, Well, then when he came to earth, he wasn't really God. He laid down that divine nature. And that's just not true. Christ emptied himself of the divine prerogative to be worshipped and served. He emptied himself of the divine right to be worshipped and served. He took on an attitude of humility. And the only reason that he's able to do this 
is because he's divine. So what we see again in this context is that Jesus emptied himself of the attitude of the requirement to be served because the divine, the father and the son and the Holy Spirit by their very nature are worthy of all worship, worthy of all praise, worthy of all service. So he, um, he took on a different attitude, that of a servant in the likeness of man in order to show us what it looks like to live a flourishing life, aligned with the will of God, obedient to the word of God, glorifying the nature and character of God. And he did this because he loved us. Because he loved us. Out of his great love, he emptied himself of the divine right to be worshipped and took on a humble attitude. To live our best life. To live our best life and to ultimately provide a means through which we can be reconciled to the Father uh, on the cross. So as we, as we wrap up here, let me just maybe encourage you, warrior, and let me also challenge you by confessing something. As we're going through this, as we're having this conversation, as we're preparing for this conversation, we always want to keep the so what in mind, right? On, on our end, on our end, as we prepare this and, and enter into this conversation, we always want to keep the so what at the forefront. Why does this matter? Why is this practically important? What does this have to do for the warrior on the front lines? How does Christology impact the police officer striving to get through his long night shift and make it home safe to his family. I want to, I want to confess that like I, I'm always looking for a practical why. I think sometimes as we read the scripture, as we learn about God, the most practical application is worship. I think the most practical application for us is worship. You know, I, I understand the, the desire for like, a, you know, what does this mean for me? Or give me some steps as how I can to apply this doctrine to my life this week. You know, I work with, with the young adults at, at our local church and they always seem to want uh, some steps, some, some action objectives. And I think that warriors like that too. I think that that makes sense to those who serve in a military context. And man, I'm telling you, I want that too. Like that, that's the tension that I feel. My challenge for us all, myself included, would be to, to consider the question, what would it look like if instead of today, this week, instead of listening to our live stream sermon from our pastor this week, and seek out some practical action items, what would it look like if we simply said, God, how can I worship you more through this sermon? Or God, after listening to this episode of Warrior Podcast, how can I worship you more? After listening to this other podcast or this other sermon, or after reading my scriptures this week, what if we chose not to look for, hey, how does this impact my life this week or, or today? Instead, what if we chose to say, God, how can I worship you because of this information? Because of your nature and character, because of who you are, because of your goodness, how can I worship you? I think often that is the invitation of God, not necessarily to give us five steps to conquer whatever in our life this week, but rather to invite us to worship him as he reveals the depth and the beauty of his loving nature and character. Thank you for listening to us. If you want to trust in Christ, or if you want to learn more about making him the authority over your life, or if you want to learn more about us, Send us a message on our Instagram at WGMHQ. That's WGMHQ. We will make sure that someone gets in touch with you. This has been Warrior Podcast with Connor Shanahan. Warrior God Ministries' mission is to change the world by making disciples among military members and first responders and equipping them to be disciple makers and missionaries in their respective communities for the glory of Jesus Christ.